Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here. Glad y'all are with us. If you're online, glad you guys have joined in. Sorry we had that little snag at nine. I appreciate y'all coming back around. Middle school, you guys can slip out with Jeremy and Emily if y'all want. Everybody else can turn to Haggai chapter 2. One announcement, next week we're shifting to three services. We'll have a service at 8, at 9.30, and at 11. So the way that I'll probably impact most of you is not. You'll still come at 11. Uh, We do need you to register. So still register, and you can come every week moving forward. We're going to try that. I think we'll be okay. So we're adding that service to hopefully create a little bit more capacity so people can come every week that want to. So 8, 9.30, and 11. Uh, 8 o'clock is family service, so no children's ministry at 8, but 9.30 and 11, we'll have full children's ministry and register uh, for whichever service you want to come to, and you can come every week. Let us know if you've got any questions about any of that. All right, so Haggai, the returnees, they've come back. They, great start. They build the altar really quickly. They begin to build the foundations of the temple then they run into some resistance from the locals. The locals are called the enemies of the people or the enemies of Judah. And uh, they get in these uh, locals. They intimidate the return. They frighten them. They discourage them. They bribe some local officials to frustrate the work. So bottom line is nothing happens for, for 16 years. So think all the way back to 2004, that long of a time span. There's no rebuilding of the temple, even though that was the reason the returnees went home to Jerusalem. Nothing's done. Then in 520, God sends uh, two prophets. He sends Haggai and he sends Zechariah to stir the people up, to get them uh, engaged in with him again and to get them engaged uh, rebuilding the temple again. Last week we looked at Haggai's first message. It was delivered on August 29th, 520 uh, BC. Uh, content the people have been experiencing a season of futility. I think it was more than just a year. I think it was a bit more extensive. There had been a severe drought. And because of that drought, agrarian economy, the people are they're struggling pretty significantly. And God sends Haggai to say, let me explain to you what's going on. Here's the story behind the story. Pulls the curtain back. The reason there's a drought is because God, God called for it. And the reason God called for the drought was because y'all's houses are furnished and finished in God's house is a pile of rocks. You've neglected the house of the Lord, uh, even as you've been building your own houses. So God sent this drought as judgment, and he sent this drought uh, to wake you up. And to their, to their credit, the people respond really quickly. Within three weeks, they're, they're working again. They're, they're, they're back to work on the temple. September 21st, they start uh, laying the foundation of the temple again. And today we're going to look at Haggai's second message, and then Zechariah's first message. And both of these were delivered within about six weeks of when the, the, the rebuilding began. So really early in the process. The whole temple, it took four years to rebuild the temple. So these messages are given within the first six weeks. So really early on uh, in the rebuilding process. So I'll start with Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, That's October 17th. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the high priest, 
and to the remnant of the people and asked them this, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So October 17th, that's the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast Festival of Booths, your Bible may say. One of the three major religious festivals of the year. So the Jews have gathered in Jerusalem. It's a, it's a week off of work. Everybody is um, celebrating. And what they're celebrating, what they're remembering, is the time in the wilderness when their ancestors lived in temporary, they lived in tents, we would say, in booths. They didn't have houses because they were moving from place to place to place. They were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And during those 40 years, God took care of them. He provided for them. He gave them manna every day. They had food every day when they walked outside. There was this stuff on the ground that was manna. They had water either from springs or at times God actually produced water from a rock for them. And he protected them in an inhospitable environment. So that's what they're celebrating. God, God's provision and his protection in a hostile climate. And then on the seventh day of remembering and celebrating that act of God, Haggai stands up. And he addresses a group within the group. So there's 42,000 plus returnees. There's more now of folks. I'm sure they've had kids. They've been there for 16 years, whatever the number is, 50,000 people, I don't know. And he's addressing a group within the group. And he says to them, who of you saw Solomon's temple? And probably only a few hands would go up. Anyone who did would be mid-70s and older. That's how long ago Solomon's temple had been destroyed. So there's probably only a handful of hands that go up that say, yeah, I, I saw that. But those, even though there's only a few of them, I would think at this point in the life of the community, their voices would be pretty influential, not just kind of the general cultural respect for elders. But if you're rebuilding the temple, you probably would like to hear from someone who saw what it used to look like. And they could probably tell stories about that. And I would imagine that they could either be really encouraging to the guys who are building or discouraging to the guys who are building. And I think that's one of the reasons they're being addressed is uh, God wants to give them some perspective. And there's, I think, even some empathy here. The question is, this, this doesn't look like much, does it? Like, what, what do you think of what we're doing here? Most of these guys are probably too old to actually help with the work, but they're there and they're celebrating this festival and uh, and when, they're, when, when, the, when the temple is brought up, they're probably thinking, yeah, this, what we're doing, it's, it leaves a little bit to be desired. If you read about what went into Solomon's temple, it's, it almost sounds like hyperbole. Like, can this really be the case? David says he gave 4,000 tons of gold. And get this number, 40,000 tons of silver. That's what he gave to build 
the temple, which his son Solomon eventually built. 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver. Then he has the first ever donor's dinner where he calls together the leaders of the families of Israel and he challenges them to give. David gives more gold. David gives more silver than the families. They give gold. They give silver. They give bronze. They give iron. The numbers, are, they're so big, it doesn't even matter. There's one place where Solomon, who builds the temple, so catch this. He has 80,000, 80,000, 80,000 workers whose job is just to cut rocks, just to quarry the rocks. And then he has 70,000 guys whose job it is just to drag the rocks from the quarry to the temple site. The rocks are 12 feet long, so me times two. Massive rocks that form the foundation of this temple. 80,000 guys whose job is just to quarry them. There's maybe 50,000 returnees total, men, women, children, young people, old people. They don't have a shot at creating this uh, a temple that's going to look anything like what Solomon's did. They don't, have, they don't have the money. Solomon's temple was funded by people who loved God as an expression of devotion. Zerubbabel's temple is funded by a foreign government as a political, uh, it's, it's a political move for them to keep people happy and squash the chances of rebellion. Solomon's got hundreds of thousands of people working. All of these, and, and not just laborers, he's got all these skilled craftsmen working. The returnees, they just have who they have. Whoever came back, that's what they've got. It's just not as impressive. If you remember when we were looking at Ezra chapter 3, 16 years before what we just read in Haggai, something similar happened when the people started laying the foundation of the temple. It says the folks who had seen Solomon's temple are weeping even as the younger folks are rejoicing. And the noise is so loud you couldn't tell one from the other. There's this sense in the older guys who are going, this isn't, this isn't what it used to be. It's just not as grand. It's it's not as impressive. And God acknowledges that. I think those questions, he's acknowledging that. This doesn't seem like much to you, does it? But then he encourages them. Two words of encouragement. One that's present and one that's future. The present word, he just says, take heart or take courage. Be strong. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Keep working. Take courage, take heart, be strong, keep working, don't be afraid, I'm with you. He's reminding them, again, context is important, this this setting, this seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when they're thinking about God being faithful in an inhospitable environment, the way he's providing for and protecting their ancestors. They're thinking of that and remembering that and celebrating that and honoring that. And so now they're in this maybe somewhat similar situation. This is Ezra chapter 5. Let me just read this to you really quick. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, uh, they're prophesying in the name of the Lord. Then Zerubbabel, uh, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Josedek set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. So that's everything we've seen. And the prophets of God, Haggai and Zechariah, were with them, supporting them. So at that time, so while all this is happening... Tatanai, the governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani, and their associates went to them, and they asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, What are the names of those who are constructing this building? 
But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius the king and his written reply be received. I don't know if that happened within these first six weeks. Maybe it was a little bit later during this four-year period. I don't know, but I do think it's, that speaks to the general atmosphere. Remember, there's still enemies in the land. There are people that don't want the Jews to rebuild the temple. And whether Tatnai as the governor is just matter of course reporting to the king, hey, here's something that's going on in your territory, and I thought you'd want to know the Jews are rebuilding the temple. It's just kind of a part of his job. Or whether he's doing that because some of these enemies have gone to him and they're kind of saying, don't let these guys rebuild the temple. They're a rebellious group. You, Darius is going to be mad at you if you let him go. Whether Whatever his motivation is, if I'm one of the guys rebuilding the temple and some official fella comes around and asks me for my name and writes it down and I know it's going to the king, that makes me a little nervous. Maybe makes me think twice if I'm about going to work the next day. And in the midst of that environment, Haggai says, keep working. Keep working. God is with you. Just like he took care of your ancestors in the wilderness, he's going to take care of you here in this somewhat hostile territory. And then he looks forward and he's addressing the fact that the temple doesn't look super impressive. They don't have 12 foot rocks that they're laying down as foundation stones. They don't have all these master craftsmen who can work all, do all these fancy carvings. They don't have 4,000 tons of gold and 40,000 tons of silver to put into this temple. And what God says is, once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The first time he did it was in Exodus 19, where he met Moses on Sinai. That's a, that's a reminder of the covenant. I'm going to do that again. And when I do, the nation, they're going to come. The nations are going to come to Jerusalem. And they're going to bring their money with them. All the silver and the gold is mine. 4,000 tons and 40,000 tons, that's a lot. I got more. And the nations are going to bring their gold and their silver to this temple in Jerusalem. That's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, that when Israel is in right relationship with God, she will be the head and not the tail. And one of the, one of the uh, outworkings of that promise is the nations will come to Jerusalem and they will worship God in the temple. And Haggai says that's going to happen. And then I think there's even another, and I would say a more significant level of meaning and Haggai doesn't know it, and the returnees don't know it, but we can see it on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple, not because there's more gold put into it, not because there's more silver put into it, not because there's better craftsmen building it, but because Jesus will walk on those grounds. Jesus is dedicated in this temple. He goes to worship in this temple he teaches and preaches and ministers in this temple. In the first temple, when it's dedicated, uh, the, the presence of God fills the temple. That's what we read in, I think it's 1 Kings 7. The presence of God fills the temple to the point that the priest can't even go inside because the presence of God is so strong. And God's presence in the Old Testament oftentimes is it's depicted as a cloud and the word is Shekinah. You may have heard that word, the Shekinah of God. The presence of God is, is so thick in this temple area that the priest can't go in. And that's glorious and it's wonderful, but it's nothing compared to God in the flesh walking on the temple grounds. The cloud is wonderful, but it doesn't, care, it doesn't compare to the, to the man. Bo was just reading that from Colossians 1. Jesus is the exact representation from God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. 
There is no greater glory for a building than to have him in it. And so what Haggai is saying to these guys who are going, it's just not as impressive. He's saying, don't, don't, let, the, don't let the wrapping fool you. It's going to be more so, not because of what y'all put into it, but because of what I put into it through my son. Haggai 2, Zechariah 1 says this, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, so this is end of October, uh, beginning of November. So just a couple of weeks after Haggai's second message. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Don't be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants and prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. So same setting, same people just a couple of weeks later. It feels different to me, the message to Zechariah. It feels uh, a bit heavier, maybe more somber. There's this word of kind of warning in this call to repentance. So what you have... Uh, Kind of in my mind, I'm thinking you have Haggai on one side who's trying to stir the people up. For 16 years, they've been afraid. They've been discouraged. They've been disheartened. And Haggai's coming along to kind of rally the troops. Come on, let's get to work. We've got this temple to rebuild. It's in shambles. Let's get to work. And that's his job. Cheerleader-ish. That's his job. Come on, guys. We got work to do. Don't get intimidated. Don't get discouraged. God is with you just like he was with your ancestors. He's going to take care of you. You guys have got to get to work. And then Zechariah comes as these guys are starting to work. They're six weeks, seven weeks into the project. And he comes with a, 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 this a bit heavier, more somber word. And the word is really simple. He's saying, you guys need to return to the Lord. And he'll return to you. It's a call to repent. He's calling them to Repentance. So while Haggai is over here kind of being the cheerleader saying, get to work, Zechariah is over here saying, but don't forget about your heart and all of this. So there's this, uh, it was a a false belief, heresy is probably too strong a word, that had taken root in the ancestors of the returnees, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. It's called the inviolability, that's a hard word for me to say, I-N-B-I-O-L ability, of Zion. Zion's just another name for Jerusalem. The idea was that as long as the temple is standing, then the people are going to be safe. God's not going to let anything happen to Jerusalem or to the people who live in it as long as we've got the temple building. And there's some truth there. God says in the Old Testament, Jerusalem's special. He put his name there. And even within Jerusalem, he chose to live in the temple. And so he does, he protects the temple, and he protects the city. We can see that as we read through the Old Testament, Old Testament history, 100% true. But the people took it too far. They began to see that temple as like almost like a good luck charm. Well, as long as we got the building, then it really doesn't matter what we do with our lives. God's going to take care of us. And it created this disconnect between God and the people. They began to live however they wanted to, and they just... Uh, 
when they were confronted by the prophets, they would say, hey, we got the temple, we're good. And God sent Isaiah and Jeremiah chiefly to say, you're missing the boat here. God cares a lot more about your heart and obedience than he does bricks and sacrifices, but they ignored him. Let me read this real briefly from Jeremiah just to give you a picture for what's going on. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways... I will let you stay in your own land. I'll let you stay here in Jerusalem. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. So there are false prophets who are saying, don't worry about it. Y'all can do what you want because the temple's here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here, but I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop murdering, and only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols, then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. But the people ignored Jeremiah, and they ignored Isaiah, and so God sent Babylon to destroy the city and to destroy the temple. That destroys this lie, what the people we're believing. And what Zechariah is saying is, don't fall back into that same trap. Don't think that just because you're rebuilding the temple, everything's okay between you and God. Imagine you're a farmer and you've been experiencing not one season, but two or three or four seasons of drought. And somebody says, hey, if you'll build this building, it's going to rain. How long does it take you to get outside and get to work? The next day you're out there. How many of these returnees that are now actively rebuilding the temple are doing it not because they've been convicted, but because they need it to rain. They're hungry. How many of them actually took the time to say, I've been living in disobedience for 16 years. I've been neglecting God since 2004. And how many of them just said, oh, it's going to rain if I do this. That's that thinking that their ancestors had fallen into. If the temple stands, then we're okay. There's no, there's no recognition that God is looking at hearts and he's looking for obedience and he's looking for faithfulness. And Zechariah is saying, hey, it's great that you guys are rebuilding the temple. That's the right thing to do, 100%. But don't forget your heart. Return to the Lord. It's not enough to rebuild the temple if you don't repent. That word turn is a relationship word. It's a New Testament word is repent. Turning away from evil, turning towards Jesus. If you're in, in Zechariah saying to them, if you're not turning towards God, you're going to fall into the same trap your ancestors did. Don't let it happen to you. So for us, two words, and you get to pick which one resonates with you most. From Zechariah, it's kind of a classic Old Testament word, kind of a cranky prophet word. Turn to the Lord. It's a warning. It's a, it's a call to repent. You're not, you don't believe that if there's a building that you're okay. But for some of us, especially in the Bible Belt, we believe, well, if I was baptized, I'm okay. Or if I prayed the sinner's prayer at some point in my life, I'm okay. I can basically do whatever I want because I've got the card here. And when I die, I'll lay it on Peter's counter or whatever, and he's going to let me in. going to let me in. Or some of us, we believe, well, God has to forgive me. So I can do whatever I want, and then at night when I lay in the bed, I just say, God, forgive me. Dangerous. 
You're presuming, I'm presuming if we're doing that on the grace of God, that God forgive me is some kind of magic formula. If it's not accompanied by repentance, we need to pay attention. Spiritual complacency, super easy for us to fall into. That's what the returnees fell into. They just fell into complacency. They started work on the temple. They got discouraged. They got disheartened. They got frustrated. Then they got to work on their own houses. And then one year became five, became 10, became 16. I don't know at what point they quit consciously disobeying. And it just became, well, that's just the temple. It's just a pile of rocks. We'll get around to it at some point. They weren't necessarily consciously disobeying, if you can hear the difference there. It was almost, it was just, it was complacency. It was spiritual inertia. This is just what we do. And they were relying on the fact, hey, we've returned. We're in the land. And then once they start building the temple, Zechariah, I think, is, he's nervous for them. God sends Zechariah to say, hey, listen, don't think that just because you're doing this physical labor now that spiritually we're okay. If you haven't repented, we're not fine. If you haven't turned back to me, then things are not all right. And the same thing can happen with us. Super easy for us to fall into these patterns of complacency. Again, we can trust in our baptism or in the fact that we said the sinner's prayer. And then we can kind of go off and do whatever we want. I don't want you to feel like your salvation is shaky. It's not. We're saved by grace, by this act of God that we don't deserve. That's the, that's the surest ground that we can stand on. We're not saved based on our behavior. When we're faithless, God remains faithful to us. But I also want you to recognize that we're saved by grace through faith, and faith is trust. And if we're not actively trusting him at some point, the question needs to be raised. Are you actually in a relationship with him, or did you just pray a prayer? Are you actually in a relationship with him, or did you just get wet in his name at some point? Are you actually in a relationship with him, or do you just think you can somehow manipulate him into forgiving you by saying the magic words at the right time? Spiritual complacency can set in for all of us. When was it, think about, even for those of you, you're not necessarily in that boat, but you read the Bible, but your mind is elsewhere, and you close it and check the box, but you didn't, you didn't meet with him. That's, I think one, one of the things Bo was kind of driving this morning was the opportunities that we have to connect with God. We're singing that song. We're waiting here for you, one thirst and hunger. And like, is that true for you? Not necessarily on an emotional sense, but in, in your heart of hearts, the, the part of you that chooses your will, would you say, yes, above all things, I want to meet with him? And if the answer is no, then I would say, well, let's turn back to him. I'm not asking whether you're saved or not. It's not, the, it's not the right question. What I'm asking is, are you actively walking with Jesus or not? And if not, then let's turn to him. I don't want you to get nervous about the state of your soul. 16 years, these guys are disobedient. And God doesn't cut them off. He sends them two prophets to get their attention. He's incredibly patient and incredibly merciful. And at the end of the day, salvation is restored relationship with him. It's not avoiding hell. Do you need to turn back to him this morning? To some of you who are online, I'm wondering if some of you, you need to stay online. You don't need to be gathering here for medical reasons. But for some of you, if the reason you're not coming is because you don't want to brush your teeth and put on your, get out of your pajamas, I need, 
you need to really ask the Lord, have you become spiritually complacent? Have you become lazy in your spiritual life? It's super convenient to watch whenever you want and to fast forward and to mute and to do all those. Are you engaging? Is your spiritual life as vibrant as it was in January or February? If you're, I'm thinking particularly of, of guys, it's stereotypical, sorry. And if you're married, like is your wife's spiritual life or your kids' spiritual life as healthy and vibrant as they were? It's easy to, to get into patterns. Don't hear me. I'm not condemning. I'm just saying, ask the, I'm asking you the question. And I want you to ask the Lord the question. Don't send me an email and tell me why you're watching online. Just before the Lord. Do you feel, is he okay? Are you making a decision based on what's best? Are you making a decision based on what's convenient and what's easy? That's spiritual complacency. And it can set root in any of our lives. Turn to the Lord and he'll turn to you. It's a guarantee. You turn to him, he turns to you. Haggai, real quick. We only have a couple of minutes. Much different feel to it. Think of 1 Corinthians 14. This is prophecy to strengthen and to encourage and to comfort. And that's what Haggai does. He says to the people, the, the foundation, God is with you. And because God is with you, you can take courage. You can take heart. You can get to work. And you don't have to be afraid. Are some of you, and the answer is yes, can you acknowledge this morning, like, you need to hear that. Fear is racking your life right now. You're being driven. You're afraid of getting sick or you're afraid of your kids falling behind or whatever it is. Have you given up something that you know the Lord put in front of you to do? You just got to put the hammer down. You're not working. You've been discouraged and disheartened. You need to hear this word from Haggai. God is with you. He took care of your ancestors in the wilderness. He can take care of you in whatever your circumstances are. He is looking for you to engage. But it's engaging from this place of relationship with him. Something that one of our little slogans that we use here often is identity precedes activity. We have to know who we are. And once we know who we are in Jesus, then we're free to live a life of obedience. Think about in Jesus' life. The first thing that we read about him after his birth is what? His baptism and what happens at his baptism. The father says, this is who this guy is. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Identity is spoken before Jesus does the first thing in ministry. He's assured of the love of the Father and of the pleasure or the delight the Father takes in him. Before he's, before he's preached the first sermon, before he's healed the first person, before he's taken the first step in ministry. And so for us, it's, it's equally as important that we are solid in the fact that we've been adopted into God's family, that we know what it is to be sons and daughters. That's this whole idea of God being with us. And then from the security of that relationship, we can take courage. We don't have to be afraid, and we can get to work. Let's pray. So those are the two questions, and I want you, which one resonates the most? you got to pick one. What's the word that you most need to hear? Do you need to hear Zachariah say to you, Turn to God, and he will turn to you. Have you grown spiritually complacent? If you want to 
starker word, have you grown spiritually lazy? And if the answer is yes, don't beat yourself up. Just acknowledge it and repent. You turn to him, he turns to you. Those words, God forgive me, are powerful when they're accompanied with repentance. His restoration is full and complete. Just acknowledge that before him. It's so easy for us to do that. God never screams at us. He whispers, and it's so easy to ignore. So in this moment, quiet your heart. Is he calling you back? For many of you, you're solid in your relationship with the Lord. But if you were honest, you would say, man, I need a Haggai-type word. My strength, my enthusiasm is flagging. I put the hammer down. I'm not actively engaged in a life of obedience being driven by fear and anxiety or expectations of others, responsibilities. And you need to hear this word. I'm with you. He's with you in the midst of that. Sick kids, sick parents, financial pressures, job insecurity. He's with you in the midst of that. And what he would say to you is, take heart. Don't be afraid and get to work. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to every child and student and adult in this room? And would you speak the word that we most need to hear in a way that we can hear it? And would you show us what obedience looks like? You know us better than we know ourselves. And so we yield to you this morning and ask you to speak. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to respond. God, I pray for any here who tend to be driven by guilt and condemnation that you would release them from that. They would not leave here feeling beat up or kicked around, but knowing who they are as your adopted children, knowing how deeply you love them, how delighted you are in them, that all your desires for them are good. In Jesus' name, amen. We want you to respond. We'll have, uh, you can come up here and kneel and pray, and Kim and I will pray with you. You can stay in your seat and reflect and pray, but we do want you to pray. I want you to take advantage of these next couple of minutes while Bo sings over us to ask the Lord, which of these two words do you most need to hear, and what does it look like for you to incorporate that word into your life? And Bo will release us in about four minutes. Thanks. Y'all come forward as you feel led.